This is the Procedus Initiative. Welcome. I'm Chris Bean, and here with me is Chris Kent. Hello, Mr. Kent. Hello, sir. Today we have a very special guest joining us who is here to inspire and motivate us all. Terry Tucker, the founder of Motivational Check, a former NCAA Division basketball player, SWAT team hostage negotiator, and cancer warrior with the past for the past 11 years. Welcome, Terry. Chris, Chris, thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to talking to both of you today. Yes, sir. Uh, Terry, could you could you start by sharing a bit about your extraordinary journey from basketball to the SWAT team, uh, hostage negotiator, and then also you know your battle with with cancer? Sure. So I grew up on the south side of Chicago. I am uh, the oldest of three boys. You can't tell this from looking at me or from my voice, but I'm six foot eight inches tall. And I, I went to college at the Citadel in Charleston, South Carolina on a basketball scholarship. When I graduated from college, I moved home to find a job. I'm, I'm really going to date myself now, but this is long before the internet was available <laughs> to help people find employment. Fortunately, I was able to find that first job in the marketing department at the corporate headquarters of Wendy's International, the hamburger chain. Unfortunately, I lived with my parents for the next three and a half years as I helped my mother care for my father and my grandmother, who were both dying of different forms of cancer. Professionally, as I said, started out at Wendy's. Then I changed hospital administration. And then I made a major pivot in my life and became a police officer. And one of the things I did in my law enforcement career was I was a, a SWAT team hostage negotiator. After law enforcement, I started a school security consulting business coached girls high school basketball when we lived in Texas, became an author in 2020. But as you mentioned, for the last 11 years, I've been battling a rare form of cancer, a rare form of melanoma. And then I guess just finally, my wife and I have been married for 30 years. We have one child, a daughter, who's a graduate of the United States Air Force Academy and is an officer in the new branch of the military, the Space Force. Oh, nice. Very good. So you you have you have quite the the, the history as far as your your journey moving through those different those different areas, um, was there was there a moment in that in there in your journey there that was kind of like a a key shift to setting you on the path that you ended up on? Yeah, there is. I mean, if if you look at my resume, it, it kind of looks like it's all over the place until you understand the backstory. Um, so my grandfather was a Chicago police officer from 1924 to 1954 and was actually shot in the line of duty with his own gun. It was not a serious injury, he was shot in the ankle. But my dad, who was an infant at the time, always remembered the stories of that knock on the door that my grandmother used to tell of, you know, Miss Tucker, grab your son, come with us, your husband's been shot. So when I expressed an interest in going into law enforcement, my father was absolutely not. You're going to college, you're gonna major in business, you're gonna get out, get a great job, get married, have 2.4 kids and live happily ever after. But that's what my dad wanted me to do. That's not what I felt my purpose was. So when I graduated from college, I had a choice. And it was probably one of the first big choices as an adult that I had in my life. I could have said, you know, Dad, I'm sorry you're sick and dying, but I'm going to go blaze my own trail and get into law enforcement. Or out of love and respect for you, I will do what you want me to do, and that's go into business. So understanding the backstory now my resume makes a little bit more sense. I, I did do that. I went into business. I sort of joke. I did what every good son did. I waited until my father passed away, and then I followed my own dreams. And, you know, I, I, 
I don't mean to sound conceited, but one of the things I'm most proud of myself for in my life is that I never let my my purpose, I never let my dream die. I mean, I was a 37-year-old rookie police officer, which by most accounts is pretty old to be getting into that line of work, but it was really something that I felt was my purpose. It was something I was supposed to do. And I think so many people just give up. They quit. They're like, ah, I'm comfortable here. I'll just stay here. I never did that. I, I, I always kept that dream alive and eventually it came true for me. Very good. Now, on your, on your journey, you've developed four powerful truths to help people live uncommon but extraordinary lives. And, you know, you have your uh, uh, truth number one is controlling your mind. And, you know, how can, how can individuals gain control over their minds and prevent their minds from controlling them? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I remember reading a, a study that the Cleveland Clinic had done uh, a few years ago uh, regarding thoughts in our minds and things like that. And they came to the conclusion that uh, on any given day, we have 60 to 70,000 thoughts that pass through our mind. And 95% of those thoughts are the same ones from the day before, which means that we have approximately 3,500 new thoughts each day. And in addition, our minds operate at the speed of about a thousand words a minute. So given all those thoughts, your mind can still only hold one thought at a time. Why would you want to make that a negative thought? I, I think the problem with most of us, and I'm certainly guilty of this many times throughout my life, is that we think with our fears and our insecurities instead of using our minds. I remember uh, when I was growing up in Chicago, Bobby Knight was the basketball coach at Indiana University. And I had a, a friend who I played with in the same conference, Isaiah Thomas, who played for Bobby Knight, won a national championship, went on to play for the Pistons in the NBA. And we used to see each other in the summer. And he used to say that Knight always had this saying that went, mental is to physical as four is to one. So here's this great coach teaching premier athletes to use their bodies to be excellent basketball players on the court. But what he was really saying with that quote is that your, your mind or your mindset is four times more important to your overall success than anything your physical body is going to do. When I was at the Citadel, which is a, a military college, one year we had a president by the name of James Stockdale. And you're both, I'm sure, much too young to remember Admiral Stockdale, but Ross Perot ran for president of the United States in the late 1980s, and, and Admiral Stockdale was his, his vice presidential running mate. But Stockdale is famous for being the highest ranking prisoner of war in the infamous Hanoi Hilton during the Vietnam conflict. He was actually shot down in his A-4 Skyhawk in 1965 and spent eight years as a prisoner of war. Now, I didn't spend a whole lot of time around him. He was the president of the school. But I remember being at an event one time and somebody asked him, who survived that, that ugliness, that brutality, that torture? And he said, well, let me tell you who didn't survive. He said, it wasn't the big, strong, tall, tough guys that thought that they could handle any kind of abuse or torture. And then the next group kind of surprised me when he said this. He said, the other group that didn't survive were the optimists. He said, these were the people that thought, well, we'll be rescued or let go by Thanksgiving or Christmas or Easter. 
and Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter would come and go and they wouldn't be rescued. And he said, those people died of a broken heart. He said, the people who survived were the people who understood what they could control, which according to Stockdale were basically their thoughts and their breathing and controlled them. You know, I think that's where we get into trouble. We we try to control things that are outside of our parameter. We, we can't control certain things. You have a very small window of things that you can actually control in life. Spend your time worrying about those and let the other things take care of themselves. Yeah, and and you know, really, as you're as you're talking, that kind of reminds me of of the the mentality that a stoic has, where they're they're not you know kind of upset that it's raining. There's nothing you can kind of do about that, but you just kind of you know you don't let those things affect how you feel throughout the day. And you know what you said in regard to the that second class of people who who died, uh, you know, that didn't make it out of the, out of the, the the camps, was the people who had hope, and that hope didn't come. And so that yeah. was really that was really interesting to me because of course then you know you 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 said it but they they died of a broken heart because they were hoping and wishing for that thing to happen but it didn't happen and when it didn't happen they had nothing else to 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 kind of fall back on so the opportunity to you know control your breathing and your mindset really like you said were, are are key to that because that is something within your own control that affects so much about who and and and, and how you perceive the things that are happening to you. Absolutely. And, and, and I remember Stockdale had a quote. He said, if I can get this right, he said, you must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever those facts might be. And, and so, you know, it's great. It's great to be positive and everything. But, you know, I mean, it, it, if you're you know, if you've got terminal cancer and things like that, there's there's certain things that, hey, this is just my reality and I'm going to have to live within that reality. I can be as positive as I want. It's not going to change the fact that I'm probably going to die because I have cancer. But you, you have to focus on the things and control the things that you can control. And I, I see that. I'm sure both of you see that, that, that people try to control things that are just so out of their control. And it's like, why are you, you, you know, you can't do that. You you have no control over that. I mean, it's when I was coaching basketball, I used to constantly remind my players that, you know, you have to concentrate in the moment. If you're mad because, you know, the, the person you threw a pass to missed the ball, well, you're still living in the past. And if you're wor- worrying how many points you're going to score in the next quarter, well, now you're living in the future. So live today, live right now, live for what you can. And I'm not saying don't do goals and all that stuff. Absolutely do those, but understand what you can control and live within the moment because so many people don't live in the moment. They're so far down the road and then they just don't appreciate what life has to offer them. Yeah. You know, I think that's a good transition into the second point, which is embracing pain and difficulty. You know, you talk about using pain and difficulty to become a stronger and more determined person. Could you share some practical strategies for embracing that type of challenge? Yeah, a- absolutely. I, I, I love the, the quote from Ernest Hemingway, who said, uh, life breaks everyone. And afterwards, many are stronger at the broken places. And I, you know, our, our brains, they're, they're hardwired to avoid pain and discomfort and to seek pleasure. So to the brain, the, the status quo, the, the way things are right now, hey, it's comfortable and familiar and just leave it alone. 
But the only way we're going to grow, the only way we're going to improve, the only way we're going to get better is if we step outside those comfort zones and do things that make us uncomfortable. And so people always ask me, you know, oh, how do you control your brain? How do you how do you callous your mind, so to speak? And I, and I always tell them, I, I try to do this every day of my life. Do one thing at least every day that makes you nervous, that scares you, that makes you uncomfortable, that's potentially embarrassing. It doesn't have to be a big thing. But if you do those small things every day, when the big disasters in life hit us, and they hit all of us, we lose somebody who's close to us, we get let go from our job, we find out we have a chronic or a terminal illness, you'll be so much more resilient to handle that pain if you do those small things every day. I'll, I'll give you a, a quick story. So again, I'm going to date myself. Back in 1976, it was our country's bicentennial celebration. It was also my 16th birthday. There was a U.S. gold medal winning Olympic swimmer by the name of Shirley Babishoff, who had one of the greatest yet simplest quotes that I ever heard. And this is what she said. Winners think about what they want to happen. Losers think about what they don't want to happen. So winners can override their negative brains and focus on what they want to occur. Losers, on the other hand, they focus on the negative aspects of competition and can't see the value of pursuing a goal or a dream. That That is really profound. I like that. That's, yeah, I'll have to, I, I'm gonna have to borrow that. That's really good. Feel free. Yeah. And, and, you know, with that, that, that kind of mentality, you can kind of see people operating in that modality where they're thinking about the things that they don't want to have happen as to the, uh, you know, as opposed to the things that they want to have happen. You can see that within the people. And as such, the, most of the time, the things that they're focusing on really is, is what ends up happening. So if you're thinking and, and focusing on the negative side, lo and behold, that's what happens. But if you think and, and focus on the positive things, more often than not, those are the things that happen. So that's that's really interesting, the separation between winners and losers with that regard. It, it is. And I think it goes back to what I said before about, you know, we we think with our fears and our insecurities instead of using our minds. You know, I've, I know I've done that, but I, I want to do this. I want to start a business. I want to, oh, oh, wait a minute. Maybe I'm not smart enough or maybe I don't have enough information or what would what will people think about me if I fail? That's thinking with our fears and our insecurities. And, and whenever I speak, especially to young people in person, I always tell them if there, there's something in your heart, something in your soul that you believe you're supposed to do, but it scares you, go ahead and do it. Because at the end of your life, the things that you're going to regret are not going to be those things that you did. They're going to be those things that you didn't do. And by then it's going to be too late to go back and do them. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and and of course, you know, thinking in in that regard from the outside almost looking in, it's always like you said it's always the things that, that you're going to regret are the things that you didn't do that you wish you would have done. And you know, that that reminds me of a quote I think we I talked about with our last guest was, you know, courage isn't the absence of fear, it's doing the things despite the fear. Even though you're you're scared or fearful to do x or y or z, do it anyways because that will helps shape and mold you to the person, the type of person that you want to be. I, I absolutely agree with that. And, and, but, but that's the problem. So many, so many people are, are paralyzed by that fear 
that they, you know, they just quit. They give up before they even start because it's it's so overwhelming. The task seems so big that, oh, the heck with it. I'll just throw in the towel before I even start. Yeah. Yeah. And it's unfortunate people are living in that type of, of, of reality for themselves. Absolutely. Now, moving to, to point number three, leaving a positive legacy, you know, understanding that what you leave behind is what you weave in the hearts of other peoples. It can leave, you know, really is a a profound concept. How can our listeners start to create a positive legacy? Yeah, I I, I am. When you you mentioned that, I was thinking back to the story. Um, Most of us either grew up with or have heard or uh, have uh, seen or heard about Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers on his television show, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, educated so many, yeah, so many children, including me, on public television. So after Fred Rogers died in 2003, his family was going through his effects, and they found his wallet. And inside his wallet was a scrap piece of paper on which Mr. Rogers had written four simple words. Life is for service. I think it's important for all of us, regardless of of what stage of life we're in to think about the end game of our lives. You know, what, what will people say about us at our funeral? What do we, what do we want people to say about us at our, at our funeral? I I still have friends who actually read the obituary page in the newspaper or online every day for two reasons. One, to keep themselves humble and two, to reinforce in their minds that one day someone will be reading their obituary after I had my my leg amputated um, back in 2020, and I found out I had these tumors in my lungs, I actually went with my wife to the mortuary, to the cemetery, and to the church, and I planned my funeral. And because I give talks and I'm on podcasts where I discuss the importance of motivation and the need to keep moving forward in our lives, I actually got some brushback from people who commented that somehow planning my funeral was in some way defeatist. I had to explain to these folks that the last time I checked, we're all going to die. As far as I know, nobody's working on a cure for life right now. (laughs) Every one of us is going to die, but not every one of us is truly going to live. And I heard a Native American Blackfoot proverb years ago that I absolutely love that that I'll share with you both. And it goes like this. When you were born, you cried and the world rejoiced. Live your life in such a way so that when you die, the world cries and you rejoice. That's what I want. That, that's what I'm hoping. That, don't get me wrong. I'm not looking to hasten my demise in any way. But <laughs> death is not nearly as scary for me because I believe I live the purposes for which I was put on this earth to do. And I think that's where the legacy comes in. What is your purpose in life? Find your purpose in life. Use your unique gifts and talents and live that purpose. Because I believe if you do, you will leave in some way a lasting legacy after you're gone. Well, and I know kind of in your regard of of planning your funeral, I know that something that uh, it's a writing uh, prompt that people go through is they plan the the speech that somebody is going to give at their funeral. And that kind of sets them up to put them in the same type of mindset where they're planning what their legacy will be. They get to, you know, what type of impact do I want to have on the people that I that I can impact? And, you know, with 
writing that eulogy that, that somebody is going to give at your at your at your funeral is such a it's such a wild way to think about that. But that is thinking with the end in mind. And then with that end in mind, then you can kind of set up your life in such a way that you align yourself with your with your values and your goals and, and all of those things to end with that type of, of life that you really wanted for yourself. Absolutely. And and I you we, we were talking a minute ago about the, the Stoics and the Stoics had that that phrase momentum mori where you know, remember death, remember that you are mortal and that you are going to die. And we should do that every day. One of the Rolling Stones, I don't know if it was Keith Richards, uh, had a ring that said that on a memento mori that, you know, he always wanted to remember that, hey, tomorrow's not guaranteed for any of us. But we don't like to think about that. We don't like to think about our own death. Death scare us because it's unknown. We, We don't know. But if you live your life I can promise you this because I'm more than likely coming to the end of mine. When you live what your purposes are, and, and I, I keep saying that word purpose in the plural because I think that's incredibly important. I think we, we tend to think that we have a purpose in life. And what I've found, at least from my experience, I've had purposes. You know, when I was younger, it was it was athletics. It was basketball. And then, as I, as I mentioned, I felt my purpose was to be in law enforcement, even though I had multiple other jobs. And and now as I'm probably coming towards the end of my life, I think my purpose has switched again to put as much goodness, positivity, love, motivation back into the world. And, you know, it would be great if your purpose at a point in time could align with your job or your occupation, but it doesn't have to. I mean, your job could be over here. It's what you do to pay the bills, but your purpose is over here. It's to be a podcast host or uh, to be martial arts instructors or to paint or to write or whatever it is you feel in your heart. So they don't have to be the same. I think a lot of people get hung up in, well, I haven't found my purpose, so I'll just settle for where I am. And I think that's the worst thing in the world people can do is settle for something that they really in their heart don't believe they're supposed to be doing. Yeah. And and, and part of that is, unfortunately, it seems like culture has built into us that that's okay to settle and let that yeah. just let those let those hopes and dreams die you, you don't really need those you know but unfortunately that's that's where we are now as a society so really trying to to like you said it doesn't necessarily have to line up where your job is your purpose it can be but it doesn't have to be you can have a purpose outside of your job which then builds in the the instincts uh, sort of say that you you know you go to work to to fulfill this sort of purpose, money and, and, and you know, have a roof over your head. And then you have your passion, the thing that is, is lined up with your values and, and what your, your legacy that you want to live is. And all of those things can come together in you and who you are. You maybe aren't necessarily doing that, that purpose at your job, but because of the type of person you are, you're bringing that kind of atmosphere with you throughout your day even though it doesn't necessarily align with your job, because that puts you in the right mindset to be the person who you want to be. And you're that same person, regardless of where you are. Absolutely. I, I love the, and I'm sure you both have heard this, the Mark Twain quote that says that the two most important days of our lives are the day we're born and the day we figure out why. <laughs> and, and I think it's important to find your, your mission, your purpose, your why in life. And, and I, and, I, and I can't emphasize that enough. And I think that's if you find your why and you live it, death is not nearly as scary 
as those people, as you said, we you know, that just kind of muddle through life and then it comes to the end and they look back and it's like, I never found my purpose. I never even looked for it. And then now it's my time to go. What a what a horrible feeling that must be. Yeah. And, and of course, with finding purpose, I think that people overlook the finding part. They assume that the purpose will find them and they're just menandering through life and, and hoping they can stumble on the thing that they're supposed to be doing. But I think that speaks to being able to step outside your comfort zone and doing something that is uncomfortable for yourself because that will grow you as a person and that will do leaps and bounds in finding that purpose because, again, it's not going to come to you. It's finding. You have to go out and seek it. You might have an idea of what it is, but it's not going to magically manifest itself within you without you doing some sort of work towards that purpose. Absolutely. I, I, I don't know if, you've, if you know who Ed Milet is. He's an entrepreneur. Yes. Uh, and it, it, he talks about the, the four types of people in the world. And, and the first group are the unmotivated. And he said that's, that's the vast majority of people that exist in the world today. He said the second group are the motivated, which is kind of a, a carrot and stick type of approach to life. If I do this, then I will get that. It's a life simply based on motivation. It's rather low level, but it can be in a very effective way for many people to live. And then the third group we talks about are the inspirational people. Word inspiration coming from two words in spirit. So if you're an inspirational person, you move people with your energy. And then the last group he talks about are the aspirational people where people aspire to be like you. And sometimes when I speak, I'll, I'll, I'll tell this story and, and I'll, you know, you, you always ask, it's like, well, if the vast majority of people are unmotivated, it's like, how many people here are unmotivated? Nobody raises their hand. You know, <laughs> no, nobody's like, yeah, that's me. I fit into that category. I'm not unmotivated. Everybody's motivated at least. And, and you know that that's not the truth. You, you know, I, I, did a, I did a panel discussion uh, with a woman who was a, uh, a management psychologist over in Greece and there are so many, uh, you know, there's Enneagrams, there's Myers-Briggs, there's all these different tests that you can take to tell what kind of a person you are. And she made the comment that when I give these tests, she said, I always gauge them sort of or take them with a grain of salt. And I always go into the, to the job, be on the, uh, on, in, the, uh, in the office with the person or on the floor, whatever they're doing, and see if what was said on, the, on that test or what came out of that test is really the way the person is. And she said, the majority of the time, it isn't. People rate themselves as they're so much better or so much higher than they actually are. And I think that's that's another important point, to know yourself, to know what your strengths are, to know what your weaknesses are, to know what you're good at and what you're not good at, because we all like to think that we're great. But I mean, the bottom line is, most of us aren't great in a lot of things, maybe one or two, but in terms of, of an overall, you know, very few people are in that aspirational character or category. Right. And, and of course, that speaks to the Dunning-Kruger effect where people who they will overemphasize portions of themselves that they're not so good at and they will underemphasize portions of themselves that they are good at. So that's interesting, of course, you know, with with the, with the uh, you know, personality test where that kind of portrays itself in that regard as well. Absolutely. Now. You know, uh, truth number four is is never quitting. Terry, you emphasize that as long as you don't quit, you can never be defeated. What advice do you have for those moments when 
quitting seems like the only option. Yeah, I mean, sometimes quitting is the only option, but but I I don't think it, it's very it's an option that presents itself or that you should take very often. Uh, I'll tell you a story. Back in the in the 1950s, there was a professor at Johns Hopkins University who did a very simple experiment with rats. He took rats and he put them in a tank of water that was over their head. And the experiment was to see how long the average rat could tread water. And the average rat treaded water for about 15 minutes. And just as those rats were getting ready to sink and drown, he reached in, grabbed them, pulled them out, and dried them off and let them rest for a while. And then he took the exact same rats and put them back in that exact same tank of water. And the second time around, those rats, on average, treaded water for 60 hours. So, so think about that. 15 minutes. You know, it's, it's not like my business is going to fail or I'm going to flunk a test. No, you're going to die. Your, your life is going to be over. And the second time around, 60 hours. And, and what that taught me was, was two things. Number one, the importance of hope in our lives. That if we know we're doing the right things, that we have the good habits, that we have the discipline, we have the motivation, maybe not today, maybe not this month, maybe not even this year, but at some point in time, there's a very good chance that we'll get to where we want to be. And the second thing it taught me was just how much more our physical bodies can handle. I mean, I think everybody has a breaking point, don't get me wrong, but that breaking point is so much further down the road than we ever give ourselves credit for. We quit, we give up, we give in long before our bodies bodies do. And I think that goes back to what we were talking about earlier, because our mind is not calloused, our mind is not tough. It's like, oh, this hurts a little bit, this is uncomfortable, I'm going to quit. And your mind's like, yeah, sure, do that, quit, no problem, big, no big deal. But again, back to our comfort zones. If you can step outside those comfort zones, if you can callous that mind. I have a, a friend of mine who, actually works with my wife, who's a former Navy SEAL. And I'm treated every three weeks for the tumors I still have in my lungs. And on my off weeks, he calls me to, to check up on me. And, and we talk about a lot of different things. But we talk about what the SEALs call uh, their 40% rule. And I think David Goggins, who I'm sure you're both familiar with, kind of brought this out in, in his books, which basically says that if you're done, if you're at the end of your rope, if you can't go on, you're only at 40% of your maximum. And you still have another 60% left in reserve to give to yourself. So the next time you feel too tired to go to the gym or you don't have the energy to read that book or take that class that is going to improve your life or you'd rather wait until tomorrow to call that client, potentially make that sale, remember you have 60% left in reserve to give to yourself during those times where you don't feel you can keep going. What a what, yeah! What an interesting way to 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 frame that for people as well. You know, if they think they're done, like that, like that that rat or the mouse you were talking about that could tread water for fifteen minutes and then could go back and do sixty hours. That's that's so incredible, and man, that yeah, wow, that 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 is really interesting to me that they they you know would fail and and allow themselves to 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 drown after fifteen minutes, but would go back after being dried off and a little bit of rest and do it for 60 hours. And I think, you know, like you said, that really hits the point of that 40% rule where you have 60% left of you still to give when you feel that you are, that you're done, that you're, it's time to give up. There's nothing left, but you have 60% left in the in, in the tank still. Yeah. Wow. And it, 
and, and if you think about that, that's that's so amazing because we're like, but it's it's kind of like people who run, you know, marathons and things like that. You know, they there's that point where they hit that wall where I just don't think I can go any further. But if they push through that, all of a sudden they get, you know, renewed energy and, and OK, I, I can make it now and things like that. I, I think that's a classic example of that. Whereas, you know, when we get uncomfortable or think we, we are and I, I hate to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. We are, as a society, soft. We are very soft today. We don't like to do difficult things, hard things. Like, no, that's that's uncomfortable. I don't want to do that. But, man, think about if so many of those people are soft and you have just a, a little bit of grit, a little bit of staying power, how much more successful you could potentially be in your life because all those people are willing to give up long before their certainly their bodies and their minds can give up or should give up. Right. And, and, you know, along with it, I think that just knowing that 40% rule, I, I think that that could go a long way in propelling people towards the things that are hard or challenging that they didn't think that they could do, or they don't think they could do anymore. Just knowing that rule, I think is, is, is fundamental. Like, of course, you, you think of the, the, the mile, you know, nobody could break the, the three minute mile, the four minute mile, whichever it was, uh, until the one guy did it. And once the one guy did it, pow, it was, it was crazy. People did it like, like left and right, no problem. But they needed that one person to, to see that it was possible, that somebody can actually do this. And, you know, I think that that kind of goes back to that, that 40% rule that you have so much more left within you that you don't even, that's untapped potential that you're not even, you don't even know about until you try, the, in, until you, you step outside your comfort zone, you go through the, the uncomfortableness and make it out the other end just to see how far you actually can go. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's sort of the, the Thomas Edison quote, you know, I, I, I found 9,999 ways how not to make a light bulb, but it wasn't until that one time that I did it. And and that's just it. Like, you know, the four minute mile with Roger Bannister. Oh no, no way. No, it's, it's never going to be able to be done, but it got done. And then once it was done, everybody realized that they could do it. So it, it just takes one person. And why, why can't you be that one person? Why can't you be the one person to figure that out and, and make that happen either for yourself or your company or whatever you decide you want to do? Why, why do you have to wait for other people? And, and the other thing is, why would you listen to other people? You know, why would you, why would you care about what other people think or, or say or do? They're, they're not, they're, they don't know you. You know, when I was diagnosed with cancer, they they gave me two years to live. And it's like, okay, you gave me a death sentence. Why can't I turn that into a life sentence? Why can't I turn that into something positive? And and maybe I will die in two years, but it's it's eleven years now and I'm and I'm still here. So why what the doctors don't know is they don't know your heart. They don't know your mind. They don't know your soul. They don't know that your kids get married next week or or your grandson's graduating college you know, next spring or something like that. And you're going to be there for those things. And and that's them not knowing who you really are. That's just them kind of being like Vegas. You know, we're going to, we're going to play the odds on what we know. And we're going to tell you to get your affairs in order. Yes. Now with, with these four truths, combining those into a sort of motivational modality, what would, what would something like that look like? Because, of course, you know, you, you are about motivating people to reach and, and become better versions of themselves. And applying those four truths seems to be the way to do that. But what is a, what is a, some practical 
kind of steps or, or takeaways that somebody can can com, uh, combine those into a protocol for themselves to become that type of person? I, I think a, I think a couple of things. You know, people used to ask me, okay, you've got these four truths, and I used to say that I think they're all equally important. And and the more I learn, the more I read. I I'm an avid reader. I. I've come to the conclusion that that's not the case. I believe that number one, control your mind or your mind will control you, control you is the most important thing that you can do to, to make yourself successful, however you define that word. And, and the other thing I would say is, is go back to the Mr. Rogers quote, uh, you know, on that scrap piece of paper that life is for service. And, and, and one of the times, and I don't want your readers or your listeners to, to think that I don't have bad days. I'm still in treatment for my cancer. I, I still get down. I still cry. I still feel sorry for myself. But when I do, I find that I'm looking internally that, you know, woe is me. This is terrible. You know, we're all going to experience pain in our lives. Pain's inevitable. Suffering, on the other hand, that's optional. I wish I would have said that quote that's come, it's attributed to several other people. But, but I think that's, that's the point. You've got all this this ugliness going on in your life. And so I, I think, you know, we talk a lot about motivation. I don't think motivation is enough. I think it needs to be coupled with two other things. And I, I mentioned those briefly a second ago. One is discipline and one is good habits. If you're just motivated, but you have, if you're not disciplined and you don't have good habits, you can have all the motivation in the world. It's not going to get you to where you want to be. Just as if you have motivation and you good you have good habits, but you're not disciplined to implement those habits, you're still not going to get to where you want to be. I, I look at motivation, discipline, and good habits sort of as a three-legged stool. You need each of those legs. You take away one of those legs, the stool is wobbly, you sit on it, you're gonna you're gonna fall over. So if you have those things, I think that's a good start. Then I think you need to make sure you callous your mind. You, you, you control your mind. How do you do that? You do difficult things in your life, things that you don't want to do. You know, I, I should clean the house today. I don't want to do that. Clean the house. You know, I should study for that test, but I want to go out with the guys. Ah, study for that test. Do things that are difficult. The second thing is, is I would say, be of service. Your life should be of service to other people. If you do that in your life, I, I can't tell you how how good I feel, like I said before, when I'm having those bad days and I'm looking internally, what I do to get out of that is then flip that outside. Who can I go and help? Who can, whose life can I make a difference? Maybe it's a phone call. Maybe it's somebody during treatment that, that's having a tough day that I can just say, hey, you want to get a cup of coffee? Or do you want to just sit here and talk? Now, all of a sudden, I'm not focused on me and woe is me and how terrible life is. I'm focused on making a difference in somebody else's life. And then I guess the other thing would, would just be to end with realize that you're only at 40 percent of your maximum when you think you're done, that you still have that 60 percent. And again, it goes to back to ah, I'm tired. I don't want to clean the house, clean the house. Ah, I'm tired. I don't want to study for this test, study for that test. Oh, I don't want to go practice basketball, go practice basketball, whatever it ends up being. If I think if you do those things, you put all that stuff together, I think you can have an amazing life. And of course, you talk about ha uh, habits, and we've talked about habits a, a handful of times in previous episodes. And the way we kind of think about habits are, instead of habits, habits is, is an interesting term that is kind of vague for most people. But we talk about habits in terms of daily practices. 
And that seems to kind of ring true to what a habit actually is. You're practicing these things every day, or I guess depending on the type of habit it is, maybe it's weekly or monthly or, or however, but you're practicing those things. And you're practicing those things, and hopefully they have a, a independent connection to the values that you have for your life and a why behind your doing those things. And all of that leading towards a goal. And when we say practice, practice is, is another word that is sometimes vague for people because sometimes people, they hear practice makes perfect. And that, I believe, is, is, a, is a lie that people tell other people. And then, of course, you know, you, you hear perfect practice makes perfect. Well, that's another one that, that sets people up for, for failure, really, because you can't be perfect. Well, you can practice and strive to be better. You know, I'm sure along your your journey, being a coach, being a basketball player, all the things you've done, practice doing something over and over and over again doesn't lead to perfection. And I think that if you're striving for perfection, that's not something that humans can do very well. So we will all fall short of that. But we can be better. And just because you've done something a gazillion times doesn't mean necessarily that you're, you're better at it. It just means that you've done it a bunch of times and you can do that thing probably pretty well in comparison to somebody else. But that doesn't mean that it's perfect. Because again, perfect isn't a box that we can put ourselves into as humans. I believe that the way we practice something is the way that you will perform it. And by doing your daily practices with that in mind, practicing something, setting that habit, another term for that, and then doing that over and over again with that type of, of, of idea or, or mindset behind it will hopefully lead you to the place that you want to be on the other end because of those daily practices that you implement with purpose and intent and connected to a value for your life. Uh, absolutely. I, when, when you were talking, I was reminded of the story when when Vince Lombardi uh, again back back in the 1950s and 60s took over uh, the Green Bay Packers in the NFL, one of the worst teams in football, and one of the first things he said to them, and I still remember this speech, he said, "Gentlemen, we will chase perfection and we will chase it relentlessly, knowing all the while we can never attain it, but along the way we will catch excellence." Yes. And I. Yeah. I mean, we're never going to get perfection. And I love, there's another quote by Usain Bolt, you know, the fastest man in the world who said, I spent four years training to run nine seconds and people quit on their dreams, give up on their hopes in, in two months when they don't attain them. You know, I, I mean, when you, when you think about that, when you put that into perspective, four years to run nine seconds and yet people quit. Oh, I, I didn't get what I wanted in, in two months, so I'm just going to quit and give up. Man, that's, that's just shit. You know, and, and really with that, with that kind of idea in mind, that's what separates the, the quote-unquote normal people from the extraordinary people. The extraordinary people are willing to show up every day throughout the monotony to do the same thing every single day because they know that those things will lead them to the type of person that they want to be. And the, the again, the quote-unquote normal people who can't can't be that exceptional person, they show up, they don't get the thing that they want within, you know, uh, you know, X time frame. They're like, ah, this isn't for me. I can't do this. But lo and behold, if they would have stuck to it for, you know, nine years or four years or whatever it is, they would have been that person instead of somebody else. Or they could at least be closer to that person that they wanted to be, that excellent type of person that they they could be. 
if they hadn't given up. That's the, that to me, that's the separation. The people who are extraordinary are the people who are willing to put the work in over and over and over again, the, the monotonous, the boringness. They're willing to do that because they know what that will give them on the other end where everybody else, they fall short because they, they, they get bored, they get tired. Ah, this isn't for me. And they give up. Yeah. I'm, I'm reminded of another quote when you were telling that story about Jerry Rice uh, played for the San Francisco 49ers, a Hall of Fame receiver. It's actually a some place for USC right now. He used to say, today I will do what others won't so that tomorrow I can do what others can't. Yes. And I, I love that. And I, I think about m- my daughter uh, went to the Air Force Academy on a basketball scholarship. She, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, got my height and is six foot two. But we used to go to the rec center every morning you know, right after breakfast. And we would work out for a couple hours. And I remember saying to her one time, I'm like, man, there's this great big gym here. Think of all the kids that you're going to play against this year who are still sleeping in, who haven't gotten up, who aren't willing to put in the time, the work, the effort to get to what they want, which for her was a scholarship. And and they're sleeping in and you're doing the work. You're doing the hard, ugly, you know, sweating. You know, how, how many thousands of shots have you put up in this in this hot, sweaty, humid gymnasium so that when the game comes next year, nobody will see that. Nobody sees the practice, the work that you put in. They just see the output on the field or the court when you do that. And and we had a we had a nice discussion just about, you know, doing the things you don't want to do, doing the things that other people aren't willing to do. Yes. Now, shifting gears a little bit, your experience as a SWAT team hostage negotiators is, is, is fascinating to me. And I think, you know, there's probably some valuable communication and negotiation lessons that you've learned in your role. How can, how can somebody use those things to benefit their personal or, or professional lives? Sure. So I, I think one of the one of the big overarching things of what we did as negotiators, and, and I mean, let's face it, if you're talking to me and your house is surrounded or your apartment building surrounded by the police, you're probably having the worst day you've had in your life. <laughs> um, but, but what we were trying to do and think, think about how difficult this is, you know, in any relationship, whether it's, you know, husband, wife, parent, child, boss, subordinate, what makes that relationship work is trust. So here I am, or here one of my colleagues is, trying to build trust with somebody who has barricaded themselves, who has a gun, who has hostages, when we have no idea why we're here half the time. We had no idea. Why, you know, why did you barricade yourself? What went on and things like that? So, so trust was the overarching theme. And, and people would say to us sometimes, hey, uh, I'll put the gun down or I'll let the hostages go, but you got to promise me when I come out, I'm not going to go to jail. And we would have to say, I'm sorry, but when you come out, you are going to go to jail. And, and then we would try to deflect the conversation to something more, more beneficial. And, and the reason we did that was because there was a very good chance a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, we were going to be right back negotiating with that person. And if they ever felt, hey, Tucker, you lied to me the next time or the last time we talked, my credibility has gone. It's out the window. So one of the Big things in communication is trust. Do I trust you? And the other thing is, and I'll give you this formula. They, they gave it to us when we when we came on the team. If I can remember, it was seven seven thirty eight fifty five, and that had to do with how we communicate with each other. 
So 7% of how we communicate are the words that we use. Now think about that. 7%. That's, that's all that is. How much time do we spend worrying about, oh, I got to get the right words for this? So 7% were the words. 38% were the tone of voice that you use with those words. And then 55% of how we communicate with each other is our body language and our facial expressions. So think about that from our perspective as negotiators. We were not in the room with the guy with the gun. We could very well be blocks away or certainly behind a locked door talking to them. So I didn't have the luxury of seeing them when I said something. You know, they would roll their, oh, what an idiot. I can't believe he said that to me. I didn't have that luxury. So we had to figure things out based on what people were saying, certainly, but also what they weren't saying and how they were saying it. And I'll, and I'll end with this. One of the big things that, that we stayed away from or we used, uh, we, we never, or almost never, used why questions. Because why questions sound accusatory. Well, Chris, why did you do that? Oh, wait, wait a minute. Is he accusing me of something? I can get to the same information by saying, hey, Chris, what got us to this point? So we would use what and how questions because they don't sound as accusatory. They're a little bit softer. And so those are, I could go on for hours about the other things that we learned, but, but those are some of the things that that I learned that I certainly tried to apply and, and still try to apply to this day. Well, you know, I think a key takeaway for that is that formula that you talked about. That is that is really interesting. You know, you, like you said, there's so many people that that him and Hall over the words that they're planning to say to, to somebody. And really, that's only 7% of, of the whole communication that you're having with that person. And really, if you can nail the tonality and your the the uh, your body language that will do so much more than i mean not that the words aren't important but in 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 relationship to the words those are so much more impactful and important to nail and get down than even the words are that's really that's really interesting yeah i mean think about it think about it you know if you're talking to somebody and and they're standing there or sitting there with their arms crossed across their chest well, that's kind of a negative body posture. You know, maybe they're not receptive to what I'm saying, or they're they're looking around while you're talking, or they're playing on their phone. What what is what message is that sending? I mean, those are pretty obvious ones, but but a lot of people even miss those. It's like this person isn't paying attention to you. They're not listening. They don't value what you're saying, and so you know maybe you ought to change your tune a little bit. So yeah, I, I mean, it was it was amazing. I never. I mean, they didn't teach us that in the police academy or anything like that. But I mean, think about it from a from a law enforcement perspective, 99.9% of everything we did was mostly with another person. You know, we whether we're pulling you over because you ran a stop sign. Yeah, I'm there with you. Or I'm answering a radio run for a fight. Yeah, I'm there. I can and I can take visual clues. You know, if I'm talking to you and you're kind of looking around, maybe you're going to run. Or if you're, I'm talking to you and you're balling up your fists, maybe you want to fight me. I can see that and I can understand that's a visual clue. I can do what's appropriate. I can sit you down. I can handcuff you. I can put you in my car, whatever's appropriate for the reason I'm there. So yeah, I mean, you see that and, and you get used to seeing that as a cop. So when you have to transition and put on your negotiator hat, it's like, gosh, I don't have that 55% in this situation. Right. Yeah. Well, Terry, as we wrap up this in, in, in truly inspiring conversation, do you have any any final thoughts or key takeaways that you would like to leave our listeners with? Sure. Let me let me leave you with one 
one story. Uh, always been a big fan of Westerns growing up when I was young. And you're both going to look at each other like, what is he talking about? When you, when I was young, my parents used to let me stay up and watch Gunsmoke and Bonanza and Wild Wild West was my favorite. 1993, the movie Tombstone came out. You probably have seen it. It was a huge blockbuster. It starred Val Kilmer as a man by the name of John Doc Holliday and Kurt Russell as a man by the name of Wyatt Earp. Now, Kurt, um, Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday were two living, breathing human beings who walked on the face of the earth. They're not made up characters for the movie. And Doc was called Doc because he was a dentist by trade. But pretty much Doc Holliday was a gunslinger and a card shark. And Wyatt Earp had been some form of a lawman almost his entire adult life. And somehow these two men from entirely opposite backgrounds form this very close friendship. And at the end of the movie, Doc Holliday is dying at a sanitarium in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, which is about three hours from where I live. The real Doc Holliday died in that sanitarium, and he's buried in the Glenwood Springs Cemetery. And Wyatt at this point in his life is destitute. He has no money, he has no uh, job, he has no prospects for a job. So every day he comes to play cards with Doc and the two men pass the time that way. And in this almost last scene, they're talking about what they want out of life. And Doc says, you know, when I was younger, I was in love with my cousin, but she joined a convent over the affair, but she's all that I ever wanted. And then he looks at Wyatt and he says, what about you, Wyatt? What do you want? And Wyatt kind of nonchalantly says, I just want to lead a normal life. And Doc looks at him and says, there's no normal. There's just life and get on with living yours. I mean, you both know people, there's people out there probably listening to us that are sort of sitting back and saying, well, when this happens, I'll have a normal life. Or when that occurs, I'll have a successful life. Or when this transpires, I'll have a significant life. What I'd like to leave your, your audience with is this. Don't wait. Don't wait for life to come to you. Get out there, find the reason you were put on the face of this earth, use your unique gifts and talents and live that reason. Because if you do, at the end of your life, I'm going to promise you two things. Number one, you're going to be a whole lot happier. And number two, you're going to have a whole lot more peace in your heart. Very good. Terry, where, where can our listeners go to find out more about you? So I have a blog. It's called Motivational Check. I put up a thought for the day on Mondays. I put up the Monday morning motivational message. Uh, you can leave me a message there, get access to my book, get access to my social media links. That's all at motivationalcheck.com. Thank you. Thank you. Terry, thank you for sharing such uh, an extraordinary journey and valuable lessons that you've learned along the way. And listeners, remember by controlling your mind, embracing your challenges, leaving a positive legacy and never quitting, you can lead an uncommon and extraordinary life. If you found today's episode as inspiring as we did, please subscribe, leave us a review and share it with your friends or colleagues. Until next time, make every day count.